Lynn Binugu is the poster child for a young achiever. She was only 23 when she put up Mano Amiga Philippines, a school offering high-quality education for underprivileged children. She is also the co-founder and CEO of She Talks Asia, a media platform that has already elevated the discourse of women's issues in the Philippines. For all her incredible work, she has racked up acclaim here and abroad, including being named an Obama leader by the Obama Foundation and a fellow of the United Nations Alliance of Civilizations. But the weight of awards can, surprisingly, hang heavily on one's shoulders. Lynn shares how she learned to make space for herself while continuing to be of service to others. My name is Leah Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Lynn Binugu. Hi, Lynn. Hey, Leah. Hi, thank you for being on What Glass Ceiling. Thanks so much for having me. You've had such amazing guests in the past, so it's really an honor to be here. Aw, well, we're honored that you're here with us because you're based in La Union now. So we were supposed to just go there for a week. Uh, we were supposed to, you know, to visit, you know, have a, like, take a break after being on lockdown for so long. But then um, maybe after two days of being there, we realized that the, our quality of life is so much better. I'm a person who needs a lot of access to nature. And because live in a one-bedroom apartment here in the city. It's been really tough last year. So yeah, we decided we're gonna, we took a one-year lease and we have, we found a small house by the beach and we're, yeah, we're gonna be staying there till next year. You know, it, it must be a slower pace in La Union than, than what you're used to here in Manila because you're a busy person. You've got a lot on your plate. Right. Um, I'm still a busy person there, but I must say that ever since I moved to the province, I realized how um, how easy it is to get caught up um, in things that, you know, what things that don't really matter in the long run. And what do I say? Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, I guess since I lead an organization, of course, part of it is making sure I inspire people to meet our targets, right? For us, for example, since Mano Amiga is a nonprofit, it's about meeting fundraising targets. And I guess the old me um, would be so particular about deadlines, you know, and meeting outputs by a, by a, certain, by a certain time. But I think after living in the province, for a while and you know just I guess just being in this whole context wherein there's so many problems happening all over the world I've become more I guess relaxed or I've I guess I've developed also the ability to to say okay um, a person made a mistake or a person wasn't able to do it instead of focusing on getting mad or getting frustrated or getting stressed out about it, why don't I focus on the why, right? Asking them what led to the delay or what 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 led to that particular mistake and focusing on moving forward and making sure that we learn from it so that we minimize rework in the future. It sounds like you've recently been through some sort of, I don't know, how do you say it? Like a, a change maybe in your in your personality or the way that you do things or the way that you run your life. Can you tell us what the old you was like? Okay, so 
you know, I've always been um, called, um, it's a German term, so I might bastardize it. But let me try. <laughs> Wunderkind. Um, it's spelled, I guess, wonder and time, right? So Wunderkind. Um, I was called that uh, because I achieved success very young, at a very young age. I, When I was 23 years old, I put up a school for non uh, for low income communities it's called Manomigo Philippines and although this school was inspired by a project that originally started in Mexico which i discovered when i was living there uh, the way we were able to create uh, the manomigo model here led to you know so many awards and recognition both here and abroad and i guess that because of that um you know, a, a big part of my life when I was young was really the work that I was doing for Mano Amiga. And I think in terms of how I was before, there was a time in my early 20s um, and even maybe to mid, till mid or late 20s when I guess I felt that a big part of my worth was dependent on my productivity. Um, be, again, because, you know, I got... Because you get all these awards, you read all these news articles about you, you I guess you suddenly become dependent or you become afraid that without it, you are nothing, right? That without the awards and the news articles and the magazine features, you are nothing. So I guess the old me would be someone who, again, was was uh, accomplishing all, the, all these things on the outside, but on the inside, I was a very tired person. Apart from being tired at work, I'm really tired, I guess, because of that constant need to prove oneself, right? Um, uh, I'm very passionate about my social mission because I was a former university scholar. So my why is very clear in terms of why I put up the school and why I want to serve um, underprivileged communities. But that why was often clouded or... Um, I guess it was uh, tainted by this need to constantly prove myself. So yeah, so that was the old me. Um, but heading into my 30s, um, I think I went, I went through a painful breakup. I think that, that was one of the things. And um, after that painful breakup was also, I asked myself again, like, okay, so why is it that but why did this hit me so hard? Or what was my mistake in the relationship? And a big part of it was also this lack of self-worth, right? Because I guess the insecurity of proving oneself, it's really, it's all hinged or um, at, its, at its core, it's really not being able to value oneself. So in the relationship, um, I kept prioritizing someone else's needs over mine. Um, which led to certain problems in the relationship, and I guess that's that's why it, it that's why it didn't really work out. So uh, that that was a big tor- turning point because it really forced me to look inward um, and to ask myself, okay, why am I living life this way? Uh, what am I trying to prove anyway? Right? Um, what is all this for? And so um, for the past three or no, five, for the past five years, it's been a constant unlearning, I would say, right? Um, you're, <laughs> you don't change overnight. Uh, it happens little by little. 
And I've been making, I made a commitment that, you know, um, I'm going to work on myself in terms of understanding, okay, what is really my self-worth? What does it mean to have self-worth? How does that show up in my relationships, in the way I approach work, in the way I approach relationships with friends um, and life in general? And um, I think the pandemic really accelerated that. Because um, I think the one thing we got from the pandemic, right, is that it forced you to see what really matters in life. And so um, in terms of a overhaul, a personality overhaul, uh, I would say that it's been happening for the past five years. But the pandemic really, um, I guess, really forced me to to see that okay um basically it's a, it's a waste of time to to try to live according to other people's standards it's a waste of time to to you know to to to, to lead your life um in a way that that is meant to satisfy what other people think of you rather than what you think of yourself because life is so short and um but i kept asking myself what am i missing out on by living in this way. It's interesting because you don't actually hear this from people who work in the development sector, who work in a nonprofit, the need to also prioritize yourself because you're constantly working to better the lives of others. So right. to hear that to hear to hear that and it just sort of underscores the the importance of needing to take care of oneself so that you can also take care of others. Let's 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 back up a bit though and let's let's go to your college years. You said that the that, that that's your background that it's it's also part of the journey that led to putting up Mano Amiga because you were a college scholar. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so when I was in university um my parents underwent a financial struggle. Um they had a business at the time. Um, so I always thought it was a bottling business. But like two years ago, my mom told me, you know, you've been giving your interviews wrong all these years. It's a printing business. <laughs> it was just, its office was just in a bottling plant. Oh my so gosh. funny. Like how my mom know. ended up correcting, you know, I didn't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I was so caught up in my own uh, world that I didn't know what kind of business my parents had. Anyway, so my parents had the printing business and then my dad, he's very risk averse. He did not invest in new technology. So the way they were printing was actually rendered obsolete. And by the time that they wanted to buy the new infrastructure, um, it was already, I guess it was going to be too expensive to keep the company. So that was one. And then at the same time, my mom was going to lose her job because her company got bought by a bigger company and her position was basically redundated. Right? She was redundated. And I was going to an expensive university um, and I got a call from my mom and she said that you know, she was going to lose her job. And when that call came, um, I got really worried because obviously that meant that my parents had to adjust their budget and there was a possibility that I won't be able to finish school in that university. And, um, you know, I, I still remember the feeling now whenever I talk about it, just that sense of 
hopelessness um, that you get. And also the fact that it was something I was taking for granted, the kind, the fact that I had an opportunity to go there and all of a sudden it could be taken away from me. And you start to notice all the little things and why that was such a good education, right? So I was very fortunate because I had, there was a scholarship competition there for budding journalists. And the scholarship was being given by the late family of Raul Loxin, who used to be part of the business world. Or who used to own, I think he used to own Business World. And because of that, um, I decided to join. I wasn't a journalism major, though I was an aspiring journalist. And I got it. I got the scholarship that year. I got it again the following year. And that allowed me to finish education in that university. So that was my origin story on how I became, you know, very passionate about, about making sure that every child has access to quality education regardless of their socioeconomic background because I knew that I was lucky, right, that I got that opportunity. But there's so many children in the Philippines who are just as deserving, who are just as talented, who won't get that same um, kind of opportunity that I had. Was it something that you sought out to do actively, like to to try to give back, to to make sure that others had the same opportunity? Or did that sort of just, was that sort of a stars align and then the universe conspires moment? Which one was it? So um, I knew that I wanted a job that would give me a sense of purpose for sure. Um, I always say that, you know, because somebody decided to invest in my potential, I had to make sure that it would count. But I always thought I would work um, in, you know, I would pursue a career in journalism because that's what the scholarship was for. And in fact, when I was working, I did an internship in business world. I was assigned to, to Malacanang. So I was, I helped cover the president uh, at the time. And then I also had, I worked for MTV Philippines also, um, as an as an intern, as a paid internship, because again, I was trying to understand media and from all sides. But what happened was, after I graduated, I got invited to do a volunteer work, do volunteer work in Mexico, for one year. And to me, it was the perfect opportunity to try to give back because at the time, my parents had already um, they were already able, they were more financially stable. And it was a good time, uh, I guess, in my head that, you know, I was given that opportunity. I need to find a way to give back. And this was an opportunity to do so. So I was living in Mexico for a year when I found the Manonga model. I, my job there was I was helping this project called Dr. Sanrisa, which means Doctor of Smiles. And it was inspired by Thatch Adams. So you wear a clown suit or you wear a clown nose and you go to the public hospital and you try to make kids happy. So that was my job. And I would go around schools trying to get other young people to volunteer. And then I came across this school called Mano Amiga. And I was so surprised because it was supposedly a school for poor children. But if you go there, they're super confident. They can articulate themselves well in both English and Spanish, which is rare because, again, the the main language there is Spanish. And 
these were just students who were, you know, courageous. Uh, why courageous? Because I asked them who wants to volunteer for the program, and none of them raised their hand because they were worried that uh, ah, not because they couldn't afford the transportation fees. Uh, but I didn't know that until one girl said, "Hey, we want to join you, but you know, we can't afford it." Um, so to me, for a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old to actually voice that out, to me, that was courage, right? Because oftentimes at that age, you care about what other people think. So anyway, I said, I made a joke. I said, hey, if you ever decide to bring this to the Philippines, give me a call. I just made a joke to the principal. <laughs> the year after, when I was back in the Philippines, I was doing a job. I was doing, uh, I, I, I was working for a PR company. And then I got a call saying, hey, um, there's a group who's trying to bring Anomiga in the Philippines. Would you be interested? And that's how it started. You know what's funny? Um, on the day, on the week that I was going to choose between a job, my the, the job in Mexico, I also had this offer uh, to be part of a TV company. And I kept asking myself, oh my gosh, like, which one should I take? Because on one hand, this is my dream. Um, it, was, it was to start as a newsreader and eventually maybe a reporter or... Um, yeah, so it was that or the opportunity to set up a school. And I said, huh, I'll just do this, setting up a school. I'm sure it'll just be two years of my life. And 13 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. That's good. I mean, you guys have really lasted for 13 years and, and th that can only mean good things. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? Uh, I always share this also whenever I give talks. I end up putting up my own media company, right? So um, I have She Talks Asia. It's a women-focused media platform. And what I love about it is that, we, you know, we we started it before this whole wave of, of um, you know, women empowerment uh, platforms and campaigns came up. So we really felt that we helped shape the conversations here in the Philippines and we continue to do so. And what I love about it, because we own it, right? Um, we also have so much power in the narratives and I can help choose which voices to amplify. And for me, my passion about diversity and inclusion, uh, I am able to fulfill that through She Talks Asia. So it looks like it all worked out, basically. I mean, from from not being sure if you could finish your college education, you've created such an amazing professional life for yourself. You have purpose. Coming from the experiences that you had, how did receiving all those accolades make you feel? I mean, did you feel validated? Did, did you mm. somehow feel better about yourself? Yes, definitely. So I think I touched on it a bit earlier. Yeah. But, you know, receiving... The first of all, I was very young when I, I I I got some of the awards, right? And at that age, I guess, right, like where at that age wherein you're still, you know, I guess forming um your identity, it's so easy to be swayed by by the high that you get from external validation. So definitely that that award or the awards, um I guess affected me or or kind of instilled that pressure that I have to keep on achieving for me to have worth in society, which was wrong, right? Because your self-worth is not based on what you do. It's not based on your awards. And, and because of that, 
I was under, I was constantly pressuring myself to overperform. Um, and by overperform, it means, you know, not just doing well at work, but even trying to make sure that I'm well-rounded, that I, that every time I get invited to, initi- to an initiative, I say yes. And, and, you know, I'm not just well-versed in the development sector. I'm also well-versed in other fields. Um, it was, yeah, it was a lot, right? It was, I mean, I'm so annoyed with my former self. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, and and again, I had, you know, I got to travel around the world for free because I would get invited to do speaking engagements and I would, yeah, I would get to attend, you know, these different conferences um, in different cities and, um, I would deal with it with so much stress or because again, right? Like there's that need that oh, I have to make sure I'm credible or that they think I'm good, that I didn't get to fully enjoy them, I guess. So yeah. So yeah. <laughs> but the pressure, the pressure that you were feeling, did it come just from you or did it come from any outside source? Uh, definitely just from me. Um, I, of course, the work itself, right? Because in Mano Amiga, if you don't meet your targets, it's not, it doesn't mean that uh, the company would just won't make a profit. In Mano Amiga, it means, oh, you won't be able to give a salary increase to your teachers the following year. So there's definitely that, str- that, that emotional burden that comes with any work in the development sector. But a lot of the pressure to overperform definitely came from me. You know, because in fact, my mom and my dad, I remember, um, they would always tell me, you know, you don't need to do a lot, right? Like, you, you don't, or if you pursue something, it should never be at the expense of your health and your well-being. And this was before all the mental health dialogue happened. But my mom was already quick to point out that, you know, you're working yourself to the bone. I, there was a time when I was traveling every month and she said, that's not, um, you know, that's not healthy for you either, that you're losing your roots. And that, I guess that insight, I still remember that now uh, because it's true. Oh, she sent me, I remember she sent me this article in the in New York Times how, you know, relationships are strengthened through the smaller moments. It's really the quality of time. So it's never about just joining them for family trips or celebrating their birthdays. But relationship is formed in, you know, the tiny moments of the everyday. So if you're not present, you miss out on those. And wow, like now that I'm older um, and my parents are also older, right? If there's anything maybe that I regret in my 20s is that I spent so much time working that I didn't have... I missed out on certain moments with them. Of course, you know, I hope that I've been able to more than make up for it now because I'm really close to my, both my mom and my dad. But still, those are things I'll never be able to get back. When you were hustling, because basically that's what it is. You're working so hard. You're hustling to make yeah. things happen. When that was, dare I say, the be-all, the make-all of your day, did you feel like you had to pay back a debt because of being a scholar and because of all of, I mean, these things that these opportunities, the ways they reached you, did you feel like me utang ka and that's why you had to work mm-hmm. so hard? Okay. 
So I think in your 20s, that's really the, unfortunately, that's really the season of your life, right? You hustle. Because that's the time wherein you're still building your career and um, you're, you're also, you're not yet at the top of the organization, right? So you're earning your keep, you're still learning. I don't think there's anything wrong with hustling, but I think I definitely over-hustled. In terms of uh, where, yeah, like the the my utang part, the thing was when I got that scholarship, the only condition, the condition wasn't even to pursue a career in journalism. So I wouldn't say it was utang na loob, but um, really... I think I felt I got lucky that I'm not sure if I was the most deserving of that scholarship among all the people who applied. Um, with Mano Amiga also, I wasn't qualified to put up a school. I just made it work, right? So because I wasn't an educator and I was so young, I don't know how to lead an organization. It was more of, am I really competent? Am I re- is is this really meant for me or did they get they just get really lucky? So that I think that's where the the I guess the overperforming a part of the overperforming comes from too. I mentioned earlier that it's it's an interesting conversation that we're having because you don't as I said you don't really get this perspective from people who work in the development sector because you're always expected to to really you know give so much of yourself because that's mm-hmm. that's what that's what you do basically how do you draw the line between working really hard to make things happen for other people and saying wait i need to take a step back and make sure that i'm okay as well because it's a it's like it's it's a difficult balance i guess to mm-hmm. to try to make work but how do you make that make sense in your head and and come to an agreement with yourself that this is my limit. This is my personal limit. I think you have to come into this work knowing that you're not anyone's savior. Because I think that's a mistake of a lot of young people who get into the development world. They're in it, they go into it thinking that they're being called to save someone. So you're not. You're not. <laughs> I think that's that's really something that you I guess like I wanna I wanna make sure that younger people know when they when they get into the, the development world. Now, where do I draw the line? I knowing I'm not anyone's savior, right? Um, what is your why? My why is that there are people in the world who need a good education, but they don't have access to it. So my role and the role or the role of my organization is to help create that access and to make sure that this affordable alternative would give them the quality education that they deserve. By being very clear about the problem that I'm trying to address, then it also helps narrow down, I guess, um, what is the scope of, of the organization. What are the things we would say yes to and what are the things we cannot do? Now, in terms of personal um, boundaries, because one, you're not anyone's savior. Um, you're just, tr- like for us, it's just tr- addressing a problem, right? And because we know that we also can't do everything and we're not expected to do everything, then 
we're able to serve according to what we can. Uh, I always tell my team that, you know, we can't advocate for quality of life if we ourselves don't have it. So in terms of drawing the line, I guess it's the same, right? When you write, like uh, when they do the briefing in the airplane right before takeoff and they talk about how you put an oxygen mask on yourself before you can put it on a child. It's the same for us. It's not going to be sustainable if if we keep giving uh, if we keep giving ourselves without filling up our own inner well. And Again, no one is expected to empty their tank, even though we're in the we're in the development sector or we're in we're in a service-oriented job. Um, because again, you cannot serve long term if after three months you're already burned out. And I guess that's really the discussion that that needs to happen. Um, because even now, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, my friend who's a doctor said, you know, there's really a shortage of nurses. They're pulling in, he's pulling in uh, seven to six hours straight shifts. And he really has nothing to give anymore after, I mean, after 48 hours, right? I, I can't, I don't, I don't understand where you can get your energy from. And that's injustice, right? That's because it shouldn't be at the cost of their personal well-being. And it go, it, so it's the same for us development workers when we're trying to help communities. We must always keep in mind that, you know, it's not just for today, whatever decisions we make, we're thinking for the future also. So if this is going to compromise our ability to serve in the future, then that's where the line should be drawn. I think there's so much value in what you just said because it's applicable to anyone, actually. It's applicable mm-hmm. to to people everywhere who are just trying to survive or who feel like they're maybe responsible for other people or their families or their friends. What you said about you have to realize that you're not anyone's savior and you have to draw that line uh, between taking care of other people and taking care of yourself. I think it's... I think it's general life advice. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, it goes the same way for parents also, right? For moms. Um, I interview a lot of moms because of my work. And there's always the guilt that they're not doing enough or things are not perfect. But then at the end of the day, I was telling them, you know, you're just, everyone's just doing the best that, that you can. And I think it also goes back to your, um, relationship with my, your parents, right? Like, I've always known that my parents can't be perfect. So I was very quick to forgive them for their shortcomings. And uh, because of that, I'd like to think that if I become a parent, I won't be obsessed with perfection. But that's not necessarily a conversation that other people have had with their own parents. Yeah, yeah that's 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 so true. But there's a culture nowadays of which people are slowly starting to break apart. There's there's this culture mm-hmm. of of overperforming, really. Of of, I mean, being busy, being stressed mm-hmm. is sort of seen as a trophy, right? Yeah, and and I mean, I I'm sure obviously you have you have a lot to say about that because that's a process that the process that you went through sort of you turned your back on on that on that kind of culture. What right. would you tell other people who are 
sort of caught in the cycle or who haven't realized it yet but are beginning to like their maybe their bodies are starting to break down or they're starting to realize that I, I can't I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I think you have to ask yourself, um, why do you feel the need to perform all the time? And who are you performing for? Um, I recently gave a talk uh, to other people who are development workers also, young development workers or youth leaders. And I told them, you know, some of you are here because of pure intentions, because you really need to help. But some of you are here because you need this more than the community needs you. And it's because you're escaping from a certain aspect of your life, whether, you know, it's, it's you're trying to distract yourself from, from a demon that you don't want to confront, whether it be insecurity or, you know, there are just aspects of your life that are not working and this is giving you purpose. And that's unfair to the communities, right? If you're going to use them to escape, then your focus will be whatever would make you feel good rather than what they really need and, and um, refining the project to make sure that it's, 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 um, it's really addressing their problems and not yours. And so, and I got so much, um, <laughs> so many people reacted and I realized that resonated um, so much with them. So I would say that if you find yourself in the cycle wherein you feel that you're constantly working yourself to the bone, um, find really, you have to find the time to be quiet and to sit with the discomfort and the discomfort of silence. Um, because I think that's really the only time wherein you can be honest with yourself in terms of what's really motivating you uh, to has to over hustle like to hustle is okay right to dedicate yourself to your craft is amazing and it is fulfilling but to do it in a way that that's the only thing that defines you to do it in a way that it compromises yours your well-being and other and your relationships with other people then that's over hustling and there is something wrong with that so that can only come in silence and that can only come also in, you know, being honest with yourself. How about for people, for women, for, for anyone really, who people who have gotten used to measuring their self-worth with achievement or mm-hmm. milestones that, that they've reached? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've gone through the motions here as well. What would you tell them? Remember the question that stuck to me earlier? I said, what am I missing out on? That simple question for me um, allowed me to reflect on why I have to stop measuring my worth based on achievements or other external factors. Because when I asked myself that, what am I missing out on? I'm missing out on being fully present, on really enjoying this whole journey. I mean, I'm so lucky I get paid to do what I love. Right. But instead of enjoying that fully, I'm putting unnecessary pressure on myself, for example. Um, What else am I missing out on? I'm missing out on seeing the small miracles that I get to witness every day. I because I'm so worried about uh, unnecessary perfection. Right. Because perfection can never be attained. Anyway, that's why it's called perfection. You can only I mean, 
you can work towards it or close to it, but it something will always go wrong. Some of it you can predict, some of it not, no? So I'm missing out on the things I should be celebrating. And I did, we did this exercise in She Talks. One, one speaker said, try to envision yourself fast forward to maybe 50 years from now. Imagine yourself as this person who's, who thinks she's not good enough versus 50 years from now, imagine yourself as a person who thinks she's good enough and compare the feelings of both, right? And yeah, you don't want to live your life full of regrets or, you know, um, burdened with unnecessary insecurities, I guess. Because when I did that exercise, I'm like, oh my gosh, 50 years from now, if I still think I'm not good enough, wala na. <laughs> and then comparing that to someone who, you know, just thinks she's good enough 50 years from now, I'm sure she's going to be such a great grandma, right? Like, who is just um, grateful and happy and light, that feeling of lightness. So yeah, there, but that would be my advice. Try to ask yourself, what are you missing out on by holding on to things or by holding on to the notion that you're not good enough or that your worth is only dependent on what you do? When, when you enter your 20s, you, you're sort of really, aside from being idealistic, you have so much energy, you have so much zest for life, you can do everything, you really feel like you can take the world on. And so to an extent, you don't want to dull that spark, I guess, of, of the youth. You, you don't want to discourage them from really going full force at life. But mm-hmm. I'm sure you also have a lot to tell them. I mean, with how to take things in stride. What are the lessons that you've learned in retrospect that you wish you knew when you were in your 20s? I guess the best one would be, actually, my advice would be never lose your sense of wonder, your sense of gratitude. It's we laugh like we laugh sometimes at young people's idealism, but I think they need. It's great that they have that, right? Because now, for example, my team is composed of young people and old people, and I love the kind of conversations that we have, or the kind of agreements, um, or the kind of ideas that we have, because there's a balance between the. I guess, the boundless energy and boundless ideas of the youth about the world and someone who has a bit more experience and is a bit more seasoned. So I guess my my ad, my more pointed advice would be I never lose that sense of wonder and gratitude even if you encounter things that are not aligned with your ideals, right? Because that is bound to happen. And while you're young, always seek the wisdom of someone older than you are, you know, there's so much to, like, I was lucky. So I was 23, right, when I put up the school. But I think the reason I was able to do it successfully was because I actually sat down with businessmen who are much older than I am, um, other school owners who are, who are much older than I am, teachers who are much older than I am. The people are hi- I hired were much older than I am. And I listened to them. And they imparted all their insights all their advice they told me um these are the things you should look out for this is what's wrong this this is something that you know could be potentially wrong and needs to be improved about the organization you're developing and 
I was very open to feedback and I was very open to learning. And I combined that, I combined their wisdom with my sense of wonder. So that was that was the best thing. And I guess the another advice, the last advice, yeah, would be again dedicating yourself to your craft is amazing. It's so fulfilling, but it should never be at the expense of um, your own well-being. Because that is already the, you know, that, that's, that's already a sign that if you cross, if you keep on crossing that line, that it's, it's at the expense of your well-being, then it's not going to be something you'll be able to do for a long time, right? And you'll burn out. And instead of loving what you do, instead of doing something that's aligned with your values, or pursuing a dream, it just becomes a burden. So yeah, to be. So don't gas out. <laughs> Take care of yourself. What is your definition of success now? Peace. Inner peace is my definition of success. If you can go to bed at night and you can live with every decision that you've made. And that you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, you did a good job today. Um, I think that's success. And that's really interior peace. So nowadays, before we end, very quickly tell us, what are the words that you live by nowadays? Uh, the words that I live by. Um, maybe I can start with the values I live by. Uh, yes, because go ahead. So one of the things, yeah, one of the things I did two years ago, right before the pandemic, this was under the Obama Foundation program, was to map out the values that you live by because that you know influences everything: the way you live, the way you, the way you uh, lead your career, right? So they say that it's called the be do have, um, and when you choose to be something. When you choose to commit to those values, then then it becomes part of it becomes your DNA and it influences all the decisions that you make. So for me, I identified integrity, excellence, and humility. Um, so those are the things that I try to live in every moment of my life. And again, excellence here is not um, doing something extra; it's just doing something well, right? Or trying to do something well. Now, in terms of what are the words I live by, um, you know, after 36 years um, of being in this world, I've come to realize that really, if you, if you don't have God in your life, um, it's easy to get lost. So during the pandemic, one person who lost her mom quoted this phrase, and it's something that really made an impact on me. She said, I've come to realize that your worst, um, your worst day with God is still better than your best day without Him. And that's something that has been on constant repeat in my head, which is, you know, whatever it is I do, I try to find God in the smallest moments because I do believe that na... Um, I guess to me, God just makes everything more purposeful. And it's a reminder also that whatever I'm working hard for, at the end of the day, it's all for that. It's all for the chance to be with Him forever. 
Thank you so much, Lynn, for sharing all of this wisdom on wet glass ceiling. Thanks for and being. thank you so much for having me.